Let's pray. It won't be long, Father, and we pray that you would hasten the day when we will be done with sinning. Our chief grief is not our physical ailments, but our spiritual failures. And so we repent, we confess, we pray that this message would be one means in helping this band of people make progress in defeating sin on the basis of Christ. So come, I pray. Give me your help now and grant that Christ would be exalted, that the Holy Spirit would hold sway, that I would serve in the strength that you supply so that in everything you get the glory, and that the devil would be undone, and that we would come into a greater experience of our inheritance now of holiness. In Jesus' name, amen. The reason for this message is to give you a glimpse into how the gospel of Christ relates to my front burner warfare with sinning. These are thoughts that are um, fruit from the leave of absence, and they are intended to fit in the sequence of messages that here in the Bethlehem College and Seminary Chapel you've been experiencing on how the gospel walk is produced. So let me begin with a diagnosis of John Piper's most characteristic sins. And I was thinking this morning, I'm not going to cry as I say these. Um, I know that. I've I've got that worked out. And and I have cried. So it's an interesting thing how when you're talking to somebody about a loss that they've experienced or about a sin that they've committed about something, at that moment, there may be no particular evidence of, of emotion that you might think would accord with that. Don't be too quick to judge. There are seasons, aren't there? You have cried over your sin. You're not at this moment. None of you. I can see you all. You're not crying. None of you. That doesn't mean you didn't last night. So just take heed that this itemization may have more behind it than you see at the moment. I would characterize my most besetting sins as I know myself, and I spent a lot of time trying to know myself would be selfishness, anger, self-pity, quickness to blame, and sullenness. Let me take them a piece at a time and explain them to you because it's good to know ourselves well if we can. Selfishness is virtually the same as pride and is the deep, broad corruption at the bottom of it all. Uh, It has six, five traits I wrote down. My selfishness is a reflex to expect to be served. Number two, my selfishness is a reflex to feel that I am owed. Third, my selfishness is a reflex to want praise. Fourth, my selfishness is a reflex to expect that things will go my way. Fifth, 
my selfishness is a reflex to feel that I have the right to react negatively when I am crossed. Now, the reason I use the word reflex for all those descriptions is because there is zero premeditation. These are responses that happen from nature. They are not based on any reflection at all. They are marks of my original sin and abiding corruption. Now, what happens when this selfishness is crossed, which it is regularly, right? That's the way life is. Number one, anger. Anger is a strong emotional opposition to an obstacle in my way. Tighten up. I want to strike out verbally or physically. Second, self-pity. A desire that others feel my woundedness and admire me for being mistreated and move to show me some sympathy. Third, quickness to blame. A reflex, growing up out of this selfishness, a reflex to attribute to others the cause of the frustrating situation I'm in. Just immediate, it's somebody else's fault. Feeling that grows out. And, and, and others can see this in a tone of voice, a, a look on the face, a certain posture, or a sideways query, or an outright accusation. And lastly, sullenness. These tend to be sequential in the way they work for me. Sullenness, that is, uh, when all of that fails to get what I want, you sink into, I sink into discouragement, moodiness, hopelessness, unresponsiveness, withdrawn deadness of emotion. And of course, as you can immediately and readily see, the effect on marriage of such a pattern uh, would be that a wife feels blamed, disapproved, rather than cherished or cared for. Uh, Tender emotions tend to die Hope is depleted. Uh, Strength to carry on in the challenges of life and ministry wane. Now, the question we've been asking in chapel is how the gospel conquers sins or how the, the, the keep in step with the truth of the gospel works or the manner of life worthy of the gospel. And clearly, those are not in step with the gospel. They are not worthy of the gospel. And so, what I want to do is share with you some of what the Lord has shown me, begun to work in me in a fresh and and deeper way. And, And if Noel were here, I think she would bear witness with gladness that progress has been made. Um... The way of life that fits the gospel is, is the way of life that flows from the cross. The cross cancels our sin and completes the perfection by which we are justified, and in doing that, unleashes a power for sanctification. And that's what I'm most interested in, is how that works. I want practically to know on the ground with me and Noel, me and me, how that 
works. How the warfare against sin becomes successful flowing from the gospel, flowing from the cross. So first, I'm going to take you eventually to Philippians chapter 2, 12 and 13. But before we get there, um, I want to give you a broader foundation and just give you the big picture of how I think it works. And this will be review, I'm sure, given some of the other messages you've heard. When Charles Wesley taught us to sing, he breaks the power of canceled sin. Oh, for a thousand tongues. He was teaching the fundamental truth about how the cross and my battle with sin are related to each other. The cross cancels my sin, cancels the sin of all those who believe on Jesus. And then, on the basis of canceled sin, the power of our actual sinning is broken. And it's not the other way around. There would be no gospel and no music if we tried to sing, he cancels the guilt of conquered sins. There would be no gospel. He breaks the power of canceled sins is the gospel of sanctification by the gospel. Now, there are many ways. You could teach a whole course on the different ways the New Testament unpacks that connection. I'll give you three. Just It's still overview. Number one, in the death of Christ, I died. Number two, in the death of Christ, I was bought. Number three, in the death of Christ, I was forgiven. And what's interesting about each of these three, and there are many more, is that in each of them, a power is unleashed from the cross that expresses itself through my volitional attack on sin. And here we're starting to get near the, the insight from the, from the leave of absence, and I hope it will get clearer and clearer as we go along. Let me give you some quotes so you know what I'm talking about with these three. Number one, in the death of Christ, I died. Um, Romans 6, 5. We have been united with him in a death like his. I was crucified with Christ. Therefore, Romans 6, 11, consider yourselves dead, or Romans 6, 12. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal bodies. And I want to know what that feels like in the moment of my attack on my sins. I don't want any vagueness here. I want to know, what is that like? My, I'm dead, therefore kill. What, how is, what is that like? What does it feel like? What do you do? Is it you? Is it somebody else? Is it only prayer? Is it only meditation? What is it? That's, that's, you can hear my ache. I say, come on, where? Show me. I want practical, nitty-gritty, on-the-ground killing of these sins. Second, 
in the death of Christ, I was bought. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. You, were, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Do that. You're not doing it. Do it. Well, how? That's what I'm after. Third, in the death of Christ, we were forgiven. Ephesians 4, 32. God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be kind to one another. Tender-hearted towards your wife. Forgiving towards your daughter. He forgave you. Okay, help me now. What's, what's the connection? How does that work? How, what's the link? I hear you saying, Paul, there's a link. You tell me to do it because that. I want help here. I need help. In every case, the decisive impulse for my holiness, my sin killing, is the death of Christ. Which means that the decisive power for our conquering sin is Christ canceling sin. Let me say it again. Put the emphasis in a different place. The decisive power for my conquering sin is Christ's canceling sin. If Another way to say it, I've said this in many sermons over the years, the only sin you can defeat is a forgiven sin. If we try to defeat an unforgiven sin, that is, if we try to conquer our sin before it is canceled, we become our saviors, we nullify justification of the ungodly, And we head straight for despair and suicide. But don't miss this. Here, I'm getting close now to the the essence of what I felt was new for me. In each of these three cases, in his death I died, I was bought, I was forgiven. In each of those three cases, the link between the cross and my conquered sin is my empowered will. My will engaged to fight sin with blood-bought power. In each of those cases, my death, my purchase, my forgiveness was made the cause of a command to my will. Let not sin reign, John Piper. You don't let it reign. You don't let it reign. Glorify God in your body. You glorify God in your body. Be kind to her. You be kind. That's clear to me that those texts are connecting my conquered sin over there as the goal and Christ's canceling sin is connecting the two through an empowered will. 
and the power that engages and enlivens and carries that will is the power of the Holy Spirit. And I make that clear so that you will know that that empowering and that action is a Christ-exalting event because it's the Spirit-empowered will, which means that the link between the cross and my conquered sin is a Holy Spirit-empowered willing of sin-killing. Listen to these texts so you will feel the biblical force of what I'm saying. Romans 7, 6. We died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit. Romans 8, 13. By the Spirit... Put to death the deeds of the body. You do that by him. You do it by him. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. In the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. First Peter 4.11, whoever serves, let him serve, let him serve, let him do it in the strength that God supplies so that in everything God will get the glory. First Corinthians 15.10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I worked harder than any of them. Nevertheless, it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Nothing is clearer to me than that the link between Christ canceling my sin on the cross and my sin being conquered is a Holy Spirit-empowered John Piper willing, me willing, me serving, me killing by him. I want to figure that out. I want to live that. In every single case, I'm working, I'm willing, I'm serving, I'm, I'm putting to death. My will is engaged. But in every case, my will is empowered by a blood-bought gift of the Holy Spirit so that he gets the glory from him and through him and to him are all things. So I say it again, the link between the cross and the conquered sin of my life is a Holy Spirit empowered will, a blood bought will. I wish I could go into that just to to draw out the biblical teachings on the connection between the blood and the Holy Spirit. But here's just one verse. Two verses, Romans 5, 5, and 6. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. If you have the Holy Spirit, which you do if you're a Christian, you have it because the blood 
It's a new covenant reality, right? I will forgive their sins and I will write my law on their heart. The new covenant is blood-bought power of your will. In other words, still getting closer now. In other words, God intends that part of our experience of sanctification be the conscious, willed opposition to specific sins in our lives. Now, I say part. Listen carefully. I say it's part of our sanctification because it's not the whole work of sanctification. In some areas of sin, praise God, he takes it away and there is no more war. That's the way it'll be in heaven. There'll be no battle with sin in heaven. And for many of you, in different areas of your life, he's done that. You're not fighting anymore with that anymore. It's over. And that's what our goal is. So when I, when, what I'm drawing out in this message is a part of sanctification. Don't hear me defining the whole Christian life as maturing or being purified only this way. I could do another sermon where John Piper has given virtually total victory over certain sins. I could. Just not my deal at all. (laughs) I'm into praise there. But my deal right now is I got a little bit of life left in me and I'm into killing sin. Jesus, I wrote an article the other day uh, and, and I said, I'm 65 and I'm I'm getting closer to the tape at the end of the marathon every day, and one of the effects of that is his face on the other side is getting clearer and clearer. The effect of that on me is I hate my sin more every day. Now, here's what God showed me. I have applied this truth that I've just given you um, I have applied this fairly effectively in the area of sexual temptation. That is, I have engaged my will and by reliance upon the Holy Spirit attacked lust with a vengeance. Jesus said, if your eye offend you, tear it out for it is better for you to go into heaven with one eye than to go to hell with two eyes. I think nobody tears his eye out spontaneously. This is not a spontaneous, out of the abundance of the heart, there is no lusting. This is a massive act of willpower to tear your eye out. So, I'm arguing That's a good thing that I've done. A-N-T-H-E-M, my anthem acronym to fight lust in my life. This is the way I've done it, what I've just described here. And the Lord, as it were, said to me, so why don't you do that with selfishness and anger and self-pity and blaming and sullenness? And it just hit me like a horrible thing. I'm passive in regard to those sins. I had this notion those kinds of sins should be taken away spontaneously. 
Those kinds of sins should happen only from the inside out. Those kinds of sins should be miraculously overcome by the root being severed so that the fruit just pops out naturally. Anger is gone. There isn't any. And so I'm just waiting for that to happen. That's what he showed me. And, and you said, so why, why, are you, uh, why are you into fighting lust and not into fighting this at a particular moment in relation to your wife or your daughter or your staff? And I didn't have a good answer. There isn't a good answer. When I, when I fight lust, avoid Say no within five seconds. Turn to something magnificent like Christ crucified. Hold the pure thing in your mind until the dirty is gone. Enjoy a contrary, uh, superior pleasure. Move on to, when I walk through that and fight with all my might against a thought, a lustful thought that comes into my head, there's nothing passive about me at all. When the lion of lust comes out of the bushes, I am on it with all my might. I don't wait for a miracle. I act the miracle. I'll come back to that phrase in a minute, but if you've tracked with me so far, that won't be heretical. That will make sense. I don't wait for a miracle. I act the miracle. So, um, he took me to Philippians 2, 12 and 13, and I take you, I take you there. We'll try to do this in five minutes, see if we can do it. Philippians 2, 12, 13. Why don't you open the Bible with me if you've got a Bible. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. So here it comes. Work out. Cut air godzis there. Do a word study on that. Effect. Bring about, produce your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, three things the Lord has shown me in a fresh light. Number one, I saw in a fresh light the word work out. Kater there. your salvation means produce it, bring it about effect it. Peter O'Brien in his commentary takes this phrase. He says, the word implies continuous, sustained, strenuous effort. And as dangerous as this language is, I mean, this is on the brink of heresy to talk this way, but he, he says it, not me. Bring about your salvation. Produce your salvation. Effect your salvation with continuous, sustained, strenuous effort. And I knew that that had been the case with sexual temptation. I do not live a defeated life with regard to sexual temptation. I live a defeated life in other areas, not there. And one of the reasons, because I have applied this with eye-gouging, hand-cutting intensity on that battlefront and not the others. Second thing he showed me after the meaning of kater gadzeste. 
I saw afresh that the salvation that I was to work out was not only the large reality of total deliverance someday, but the concrete reality of salvation from anger, salvation from self-pity, salvation from blaming, salvation from sullenness. The, The verse takes on a different pointed ring when you say, work out your salvation from blaming people. Work out your salvation from sinking in sullen self-pity, wishing others noticed your woundedness. Work that out. Effect that. Bring that salvation about. That's what it says. So, I resolved that I would work out my salvation from anger and work out my salvation from self-pity and work out my salvation from blaming and sullenness. Now, here's the third and last observation from this text that became freshly powerful for me. The connection between fear and trembling, verse 13, and God's presence working and willing in me. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Why fear and trembling? Why should I attack selfishness and attack anger and attack blaming and sullenness and self-pity? Why should I attack those with, with fear and trembling? And if you just let your mind spin off without any context, you'd say, because your life is at stake. You might go to hell if you don't, which is true. It's just not what he says. The ground for my trembling here is not threat, but gift. Tremble, God Almighty, the creator of the universe, your father, your redeemer, your sustainer is in you. Willing and working, tremble. Your acting is his acting. If that hits you, that's what I meant by, I don't wait for a miracle. I act the miracle. My attack on my sin in reliance upon the Holy Spirit rooted in the gospel is God's act, not mine. I worked harder than any of them. Nevertheless, it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. When that lands on you, I mean, if you could feel that, you would tremble. My willing is the willing of the omnipotent God. My acting, my opposition is the acting and the opposition of the infinite, omnipotent, sovereign creator of the universe. He's that close to me. He's that involved with me. He's that much on my side. He's that much indwelling and shaping and forming my whole attack. Yeah, he is. That's what it says. Let me close with an illustration. Last Sunday night, so this is, the warfare goes on. Last Sunday night, you remember, remember it? It was snowy, right? 
And, and I love it. I just love to get locked in. Can't go anywhere, so you're feeling okay. You're there, the family's home, and I was sitting on the couch. Supper was over. Noel was working in her study. Talitha was cleaning up in the kitchen a little bit. And I was looking forward to doing something with Noel and Talitha. Watch something, do something, whatever, you know. And Talitha comes in and she says, Mommy and I are going to watch Super Nanny on the computer. War. This, this, is, just, this is not the plan. She comes in, they go over, they set up the computer on the stool, sit on the love seat, I'm on the couch, and turn it on and start watching. Now, praise God that some of you would have no problem with that at all. Everything in me said, this is so wrong. I am the dad here. I should be consulted, at least. I mean, I want to watch two. Something, not that. (laughs) So, now, in the past, before I got serious about this, I think I would have simply sunk. I would have become angry. I would have uh, felt sorry for myself. They left me out. I would have blamed And I would have gone upstairs sulking, thinking of something to say that would hurt them and make them feel sorry for me. Well, I did not do that. I saw it rising. I hated it. I'm going to kill this. So without any kind of cold shoulder, I said something simple and non-offensive, and went up to my study and warred for about a half an hour. Killing, bringing to mind every kind of promise, every kind of blood-bought precious inheritance, every good thing in my life. Set your mind on things that are above and think on things that are pure and holy and just and commendable and good. And I was making war for 30 minutes until I killed it. And, later, and here's, here's what, I, I, the test of whether I could kill it, this may not be the way you prove it, but the test of whether I could kill it is whether I could not forget it that moment, but actually mention something to Noel in a totally non-condemning way. That's the huge challenge for me. Could I deal with that moment in a way that didn't indirectly and subtly blame, condemn and I, I think the words I used later, and, and, and she felt the, the freedom, I think, not blaming. I said, you know, I was, I was kind of surprised that that happened. And, and she brought out what she had said to Talitha and what they'd done. It was a lot of miscommunication. Talitha was supposed to say this, blah, blah, blah. And, and it was over. And in the past, it wouldn't have been over for a week, two weeks. Conclusion. Um, Yes, brothers and sisters, it would be a thousand times better if on that couch that sin never arose in my heart. It would be a thousand times better if this 65-year-old preacher never had those feelings. 
That's the way it'll be in heaven. I want that. I would like that. That day will come. It may come in this life. It may not. And my point here is, until that day comes, part of God's will for your and my strategy in sanctification is a empowered, Holy Spirit-shaped and driven, blood-bought, willing against a particular sin until we kill it in that moment. It may come again tomorrow, but in that moment, we're going to kill it. And we will stay on it until it's dead. We will put our foot on its neck and say, you're not getting up. Bang, you're dead. I am not letting you go. That's been new for me. So pray for me, and I will pray for you. We act a miracle. It is God willing in your sin-killing willing. Let's pray. Oh God in heaven, I confess my imperfection and in some areas my immaturity so far behind where I should be and I ask that you would draw near to me and to us here now and give us both kinds of sanctification. The spontaneous victory at the root level that never lets any bad fruit appear and the killing of the thing that rises up that's so evil. Give us a gospel understanding of these things and a gospel experience of these things for the glory of Jesus Christ, we pray.